Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. This is episode number 335. And today we're speaking with Mark Rowenhorst. Mark is the guide and outfitter that I will be hunting with this fall for my mountain goat hunt in Alaska. As many of you may have heard, it's my first guided hunt. It's my first mountain goat hunt. And Mark is a guy that I am super excited to get up and share the experience with. And just wanted to share more about Mark's background, his history, how he got into hunting, coming from being an Iowa farm boy, what our hunt's going to look like, and much more. So we cover everything from the transition from Iowa to Alaska, to hunting Alaska in general, to becoming a packer, and then a guide, and then an outfitter, talking a bit about my hunt, some of the gear, some of the uniquenesses. It's a well-rounded conversation that I know you can enjoy and benefit from. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget about the new Speak Pipe opportunity to leave us your audio question, which we've been sharing on Monday Minute episodes. So to do that, just look for the link in the show description. You don't need to download an app. Just hit that link. You can leave us a quick audio message with your question, and we will answer that on a future podcast episode. And also, if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. Right now, though, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Mark. Well, Mark, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. I'm excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man. I don't know that I've actually spoken to a Mark on the podcast. This is like the two Marks today. I don't know that that's happened before. <laughs> oh really? At least that's uh, two marks with a K. There's no of those. Oh, two. Yeah, no C, no C's allowed on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I am. Uh, we haven't met in person. We've obviously chatted on the phone and exchanged emails. Actually, going back a couple of years, um, dude. I can't wait to get up there and go on this hunt. Like, I was uh, excited about it, chatting with you, and then signed the paperwork, booked it, super, super excited, and then didn't put it out of my mind. But here at the beginning of the year, I was dealing with COVID and then show season. It was just, you know, had a really crazy kind of like a month straight. And now I'm back from all that. And it's immediately like, I don't know, man, is it September yet? Because I'm so excited. So <laughs> right uh, on. yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun really to, to hear and observe your enthusiasm, which I I think most of my hunters clients um, feel that way, but I don't, they don't necessarily always express it. Um, And it kind of, you know, when you do something quite a bit, it becomes familiar and you, Mm -hmm. you lose a little bit of that first time enthusiasm. It kind of brings me back to when I, you know, when I dreamt of goat hunts and when I first uh, started contacting outfitters to, to uh, get some goat hunting experience. Now yeah. it brings me back to those, those feelings that I had. So it's something that is kind of good for me to refresh on and, and remember what that feels like. That's cool. So are you saying I've bugged you too much because you hear from me too much and not most clients? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. That's funny. So what, uh, you said that about your first goat hunt. When was that? Um, my first experience with actually being on 
goat hunts with an outfitter here was 2016. Okay. So in some ways, long time ago, some ways not long at all. Yeah. I guess we'll, you know, kind of skip the past to immediately getting derailed and talking about goats, but go ahead and like, let's cover some personal introduction background. Um, yeah, I, it was funny. I went back cause I knew that we had exchanged a couple of emails a couple of years ago. And then even in, I think the first email, uh, you had mentioned you met Steve like way back in 2013, uh, to show. And then it was funny. You had mentioned soul adventure, which was like, feels like a former life ago, but an old site that I used to have. Um, <laughs> and so I think we've been somewhat aware of each other for a bit, but obviously have uh, connected more here recently. Um, but it sounds like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I know for a while you were down here in the lower 48. Did you, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I actually grew up in Iowa there, not too far North of you. And, yeah. um, ironically, I, I didn't actually grow up big game hunting. Um, my, my dad didn't hunt. He was a farmer and a little, probably a little too busy on the farm. Um, but I always, we were outdoors a lot. Um, I had some interest in hunting. There was always, I mean, we, we lived on a farm in Anchorage and we're always playing in the woods and stuff like that. So there was always some level of interest, but then kind of throughout um, my years growing up, athletics was kind of a big part of my life and um, that maintained through college. But in college, I think was when I kind of started to recognize a draw to the woods um, but again, I didn't, I didn't have close friends that hunted. Um, I didn't really have much of a gateway into the hunting world. Um, but my younger brother, actually, he, he did have friends that hunted. And so when he started, he kind of piggybacked off his friends and I, I piggybacked off him a little bit, um, not having a clue what I was doing, but felt like I needed to be in the woods, <laughs> sitting in mm-hmm. a tree stand, uh, watching sunrise and, and hoping a deer walks by. So picked up a bow and started bow hunting, um, while I was in college and gave me a good reason to skip quite a bit of class and, um, <laughs> hustle back to basketball practice. And, and that's kind of what college was like for me. Um, but then I had always really been a sucker for the mountains um, growing up, we, every, every summer we'd take every other year, we'd go take horses to the black Hills. And then on the opposite years, my mom's family was from, uh, Washington state. So we would <clears throat> road trip every, every other year out there and, and just driving through the mountains. Um, I was just captivated. <laughs> so, yeah. so once I graduated college, um, I kind of gave it the summer. I was like, I'll look for something in my field that I wasn't overly passionate about, but I, I spent the summer there in Iowa, but I was like, once summer's over, um, I'm going to take the first job I can find in Rocky mountain state and I'm going. So that happened to be Montana. I picked up construction job with, um, I played basketball with a kid from the Bozeman area there and his dad had a construction business. He said he'd give me work if I moved out there. So that's what I did. And, and I mean, from then on, it just, it snowballed the whole backpack hunting, being in the mountains. Um, it was on from there. So 
Um, and then from there, I, I worked that job just for a few months and I fell into a job with a, a, a manufacturer in the hunting industry and, and took that. And then that kind of opened my eyes a lot to what else was out there besides elk and mule deer and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but I was there for about for five years and then my wife and I kind of got restless and, and, uh, not having kids at that time, we were up for an adventure and as things worked out, just, just doors opened up for us and it felt like Fairbanks was, was where we needed to go. So we went. Yeah. Did you have any, like any pull or think it was going to become what you did in terms of like, was part of the move to Alaska becoming a guide or were those like two separate things? Or maybe the move to Alaska came first and guiding wasn't on the radar. Uh, did those happen kind of in conjunction with each other or no? Well, it was really two separate things. I'd say, um, I had interest in Alaska and that type of lifestyle, probably dating back to high school. I started dreaming of Alaska and things like that, but not, I mean, it was so overwhelming. I think in hindsight, if I knew how doable it was, I would have just, I mean, I probably would have left after high school and, and went for it, but, but it was overwhelming at that time. And then when I, when I got married, I think I kind of gave up on the Alaska dream. I was like, Oh, that's <laughs> not happening. Um, but then more practical we, now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. When, as we were going through that process of kind of feeling restless, uh, my wife was actually the first one to mention Alaska. Um, and it ended up being that her, her job sealed the deal for us to move. Um, so she, she landed a job in nursing in Fairbanks and, and then it was like, everything happened unbelievably quickly like this was we started this process probably in early june and by by early july she accepted a job and by late july i was driving a um a trailer with all, all our stuff to alaska <laughs> so it was a very very quick process yeah dude um so then when she had the job and we didn't have kids i was like well I have a lot of flexibility in what I can do. So I, I looked into what it takes to become a hunting guide and it seemed pretty doable. I called a couple outfitters and, and, uh, there was actually a guy from Montana that, that outfits up here. And I got to go meet up with him and he's like, yeah, I could, I could use you this fall. So before I knew it, I was, uh, thrown into the Alaskan bush right there first thing in August. So. so what's the, you know, it's one thing like you, your first season with this guy, I'm sure you're essentially a, a packer for the most part, but talk us through a little bit about, you know, that process versus becoming an actual licensed guide in Alaska. Cause there's some, you know, there's steps to follow and experience you have to have and different things like that. So was that a couple year process for you to actually become a licensed guide or what did that look like? Yeah, it was, um, I had reached out to, I think the Alaska professional hunters association and the big game commercial services board to see what the requirements actually were to become a licensed guide. 
Um, and I mean, there's, there's more to it, but the skinny of it is if you're, if you're new to Alaska, you need like 60 days in the field on hunts with a minimum of that being, uh, 30 days minimum in a guide camp. Um, and that can take place over the course of two years. And then to get qualified, to get your assistant guide license, um, within that 60 days, you need to have participated in the spotting, stocking and taking of at a minimum of three big game animal kills. Um, and then you qualify for your assistant guide license and you kind of have to have an endorsement from an outfitter. Um, so for me, I knew that going in and I talked to this outfitter about that. He's like, yeah, yeah, we'll make sure you're in the field. That's how you learn and all that sort of stuff. Well, as it turned out, he's in a, a horse outfitter and for whatever reason, <laughs> it kind of ended up that I was um, kind of a camp boy. I washed a lot of dishes late at night, <laughs> was up early wrangling horses, no matter where they were, across the river, down the river, a couple miles. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up not getting much time in the field. I would get called to bring extra, extra meals to pack moose and stuff like that, but didn't get on any kills. And I was pretty frustrated and disappointed. Um, so the next year I moved on and, and found another outfitter to work for. And um, he doesn't run a lot of hunts. And so I was kind of, I was really itching to check off those, those three kills. And as it went, I was on two sheep hunts, a moose hunt and a brown bear hunt. And we went one for two on sheep. We did get a grizzly on one of the sheep hunts. So I got two kills there. Um, but we struck out on moose. We struck out on brown bear, which was really rare for his area. He's actually got a phenomenal bear area, but the way things went, um, it didn't work out. <laughs> so now yeah. I was two years in and I probably had like, 150 days in the field yeah. and was still not eligible for that license so that was frustrating so then i had to find hunts um the next spring to get on and and just hopefully get those kills so i could get my guide license by the next fall and uh <clears throat> that's kind of that's when i um started looking for go outfitters and, and reached out to some and there was one that said yeah he i i could join him on his spring brown and black bear hunts in southeast alaska and then he didn't know if he could use me in the fall on goat hunts um but he said at least we could try it out in the spring and that worked out we got we killed a brown bear and a black bear and a couple black bears and got licensed that summer finally was that your that spring was that your first time spending much time in the southeast yeah it was um somewhat ironically too my my wife's grandparents, they like take the whole family on a big cruise every five years and they booked an Alaskan cruise, um, the year before we moved up, but we, then we moved and then we had to fly back down to BC to do this Alaska cruise. And I run, and you know, they take that inside passage up through Southeast and, um, stopped and, uh, you know, catch can Juno Skagway while we were in Skagway. <clears throat> um, her family and us, we took a little shuttle or a 
ferry over to Haynes and did um, a, a little kayak tour. And we saw mountain goats up on the mountain there. And I was like, man, I'm going to have to look into mountain goat hunting here. And uh, as fate would have it, that's uh, right where I ended up working for a guide and chasing goats. Wow. Did you, uh, your experience of Southeast coming from, you know, further North in Alaska, was it pretty stark, pretty drastic of a change? Did you have any sort of affinity to it or just how did you feel about it experiencing the first time? I've never been in the Southeast area at all. I've been to Kodiak and the way up in the brook. So to me, it's, that's kind of where I'm at of like the, the excitement of just experiencing something new. It's cause it's so interesting to say Alaska is people like you've been to Alaska and it's like, do you realize how big and vast and different an Alaskan experience could be? Right. So even though I've been to Alaska a few times, like the idea of going to the Southeast is all new. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's wildly diverse and there's so much, there's so many types of things that I still haven't done. Um, but yeah, the Southeast is definitely drastically different from up in the interior Northern area. Um, I would say initially, I mean, it's, it's strikingly beautiful. That coast range is, is, is really stunning. It's, it's just so drastic coming straight up out of the water. Um, as far as actually being on the ground, it's, it takes a little bit of the enjoyment out of uh, <laughs> traversing the landscape. It's far different from a sheep hunt. Um, sheep hunting you might you might cover a whole while you do you cover a whole lot more country um distance wise than on a mountain goat hunt but the but that southeast landscape is is just a struggle fest um it's challenging to get around so you're generally you kind of have one or two routes up and down a mountain it's it's pretty hard to actually traverse ridge lines and things like that it's so steep and broken up um and everything in the lowland is, is jungle, you know, really thick um, brush. So you're not doing a whole lot of um, traversing uh, back and forth on the mountain or anything like that. You're, it's kind of a straight up, straight down off the river systems or off the salt water. Do most clients that you book for a goat hunt know what they're getting into in that regard? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I mean, it, you can tell them all, I mean, tell them everything that you can. I try to prepare them and, and give them a good picture of what it'll look like and feel like, but there's just nothing that uh, really can describe what it feels like to be on a, a mountain between 30 and 50 degree slope 90% of the time. Um, yeah, it, most people are pretty overwhelmed initially with the country. I hear that. And even the suck factor of it, like, I know it's going to be hard in the moment, but still like, those are the types of things that here in the comfort of my home, I'm like, I'm excited about that. Right. Like it's so different. Um, even the first time we went to Kodiak, some listeners have heard that story and it wasn't even the worst spot and probably isn't going to be as bad as some of this bushwhacking, brush busting, climbing is going to be. But some of my experience coming off of the shoreline in Kodiak and the first time I really got into 
all the brush and devil's club and alders and all that stuff. Like it's a, it's a unique experience to what it does to you physically. Yes. But what does it do mentally? Like the level of frustration and how it builds. (laughs) And then you also realize that you just have to make the best of it and kind of put your head down and keep going. You know, um, it definitely makes you want to curse a lot for sure. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. Certainly. And it dictates, you know, different things with gear choices and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that, I mean, that layer of brush and stuff is, it's painful, but really ultimately it doesn't last that long. And once you're above it, um, the, the views and, and that Alpine experience pays dividends, um, to what, what it took to get there. So it's always worth it. Yeah. We'll get more into some of that, uh, but to back up again a little bit, how did you go from being just a guide to then becoming an outfitter, having your own outfitting business and operation? Because those are two drastically different things. Yeah. Yeah. They are very different. Um, when I, when I first set out to try out guiding, I had no intention really for it to become like a long-term career, anything like that. Um, but as it went, I just, I really enjoyed it. It seemed like, um, it fit me really well. Um, so I kind of kept running with it and it just kept snowballing and, and things were going well. Um, but then again, I still didn't necessarily have aspirations to own my own business until that outfitter in Southeast, um, was kind of prepping for retirement, started talking about retirement and potentially, um, having me take over his business or his area. Um, so when he kind of started laying out some sort of succession plan, um, for me to come into that kind of gave me the push to pursue my registered guide license. And in addition to that, um, now we do have two young kids and, and I wanted to have a little more control over my schedule, how long I'm gone. And that's pretty tough to do unless you're, you're the one making the schedule. So, um, that was another big part of it. Try not to be gone for very long stretches at a time. Um, so that process includes you have to be an assistant guide for a minimum of three years. And then you have to have like a certain amount of kills under your belt. Um, and I think it's like eight to 10 positive references. of like call guys that have hunted with you um, for, for references. And then you have to take a big two day written and oral test. Um, to get that guide license. And there's a few other things you have to do. You have to take a video of um, showing you're capable of caping, fleshing, turning, um, hide prep, all that sort of stuff. And um, you have to supply a bunch of info about yourself and then take that big written test. Um, And then for any animals that you're going to register to guide for, you have to test out on those animals. There's some animals you don't have to test out for, but any of the ones that have like legal restrictions, Mm. um, like sheep, 
moose of you know 50 inch regulations mm-hmm. um anything like that caribou was on there i think they're removing it and then brown bear and mountain goat you have to test out on those animals to be able to uh, register to contract hunts for them and then you also have to test out and prove up on having um, 60 days in the field in any given game management unit you want to be certified for um, so you have to prove that you've spent that time in a given unit and then you and then you have to take a test on the unit to get certified for any GMU um, so right now I'm certified in unit 20 that's up in the interior around Fairbanks and then unit one in Southeast. And yeah, so that's basically the process. And that's how, that's how I decided, made that decision to pursue my registered guide license. And um, then it wasn't until that happened in 2019, spring of 2019, I acquired the license and then I still worked under other guides for um, through 2020. And then uh, started contracting on my own as of just last year. So now that you're, uh, at least you may be guiding with other outfits for other species, but in terms of contracting on your own, what species are you booking for? Uh, primarily, um, doll sheep, mountain goat, and then brown bear, which the brown bear stuff is kind of in flux now, but that's a, a kind of a side tangent, but, um, those three are kind of the primary big ticket items. Um, but then in up in the interior, I can, or I have the capability of, of adding caribou hunts on somewhat of a custom basis, caribou or grizzly bear. Um, and that I just kind of do on a custom or add on basis to a sheep hunt, um, to supplement the season up here. And then the, the later half of the season, when I go to Southeast, um, that's primarily mountain goats right now. Um, and you can add black bear, <coughs> but I don't, I only use black bear as an add on species. It doesn't really, um, work out to, to, uh, contract hunts just for black bear. It doesn't really, um, I guess work out business wise in Alaska. And there's so many, uh, much more reasonable and priced hunts you can do elsewhere for black bear. So. so tell me a little bit about, I don't know if putting it history is the right word. The reason history comes to mind in this question is like the history of goat hunting in the Haynes area or in Southeast, but uh, maybe not just history, but some of the uniquenesses of mountain goats in, in that area. Um, and again, the reason history comes to mind is because I was pretty fascinated to see that uh, in some of the older books on mountain goat hunting, that like going back to, gosh, I think some of these hunt reports are from, I could be wrong here. the thirties or forties, maybe the fifties. Uh, <laughs> but guys were talking about Haynes and I was like, Oh, that's where I'm going. This is pretty cool. Like to see these old books and old stories kind of from that same area. And obviously things have changed since then, but, um, yeah, all that said, what's kind of the history, what's unique about goats in Southeast or kind of in the Haynes area specifically that you're aware of? <laughs> Well, with some of that book knowledge, it sounds like you're, you might have to help me (laughs) (laughs) as far as book knowledge, you've been doing a whole lot more reading, um, than I really have. 
Yeah, it's tapered off. I was again, I was like super excited and crazy busy. I need to pick these books back up. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know exactly how much I can give you historically. I mean, I think there there used to be like, you know, way back when they were punching in the Dalton Trail and um, things like that, people were uh, just whacking goats for subsistence. Um, at that time, up in uh, whatever that pass is above Skagway, but um, there's always been quite a bit of subsistence there and certainly with the native population and they use the hair for um, different things and do a lot of weaving with mountain goat hair. Um, beyond that, the goat specific to that area, from what I understand from biologists, they have the largest bodied goats um, in the world. And I think they, they radio collared and tagged one that they weighed, I think in July, it was 385 pounds. Whoa, um, smokes. And so, and they suspect that they're still growing. So, you know, they're probably still putting on weight, you know, through September. Um, so more than likely there are mature billy goats that are over 400 pounds in the, in the, outfitter that I worked for there, he, he feels fairly confident they've killed Billy's over 400 pounds. Certainly can't prove it necessarily. I'm not taking them off whole. Um, but exceptionally large, uh, body genetics, um, in regards to horn size, um, we kill some Boone and Crockett Billy's, but not a lot. Um, they tend to be, shorter in length, but more mass than a lot of other areas. Um, for instance, we had an archery hunter a couple of years ago that took a really, really nice eight-year-old Billy that was neither of his horns were even made nine inches long, but it was just an inch shy of Boone and Crockett. It had over six inch bases, which is um, considerably massive. Um, but most people and myself included, I don't necessarily feel that on a mountain goat that the horn is like the trophy quality of a mountain goat. And I, I think most people would agree that it's kind of the pelage or the hair is kind of one of the major appeals to a mountain goat in regards to, um, trophy quality, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goats are interesting in the horns because it's like what separates a, a decent goat or a good goat or a great goat. I mean, sometimes you're talking like <laughs> yeah. an inch, right? So it's like yeah. it, it's such a different uh different mindset on horn size com compared to guys who are used mm -hmm. to deer and elk and talking about inches. It's like, well, it's like an inch here, you know, it could be a massive difference in a goat. Yeah. So do you have anything to add to that? I know you that you were somehow struck gold and got that old Duncan Gilchrist book, which I am really, really jealous of and might demand you bring it with you. Yeah, I might have to. Yeah. Actually that's from uh, a coworker. One of the guys here at Exo Pat had that book and he picked it up, but yeah, it was one of the books I wanted to read. And then I'm, you know, I was looking online and it's out of print. So you see these old paperback copies for like, you know, $180 um, right. that are well used and things like that. So yeah, thankfully he uh, he had a goat tag in Idaho a couple of years ago, and so he he was kind of doing similar to me of like, let me read, let me learn, 
and he had a copy that he sent me. So uh, I got pretty fortunate there. Hopefully, uh, hopefully he forgets I have it. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'll send it back. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, but yeah, is there anything that you can add based on what you've been reading? Yeah, I mean, I think what the thing that stood out to me was what you mentioned about body size um, and then mass somewhat as well. Um, and just, you know, how different or unique it is for that area to think of goats uh, with that body size is is pretty fascinating. There was definitely in that book, as well as in some of the others that I've read a bit, like you kind of mentioned, it, it talked uh, about the native history and how they viewed goats and used goats and um, different things like that. So um, yeah, the body size was the main thing that for that area specifically that stuck out to me. And like, to me in the end, it's, I was originally planning on doing a goat hunt in Kodiak simply because the, after the first time I went to Kodiak, I was just like, gosh, this is the coolest place on earth. And I want to go back. And now I've, have gone twice and it's been both for deer. And then, um, once I started looking though, at other opportunities, like that whole idea of Southeast and going straight from water, like straight into the mountains and climbing and, you know, it's similar on Kodiak, but, um, then the appeal of the newness and yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons that made sense. Um, which I guess is a good time to highlight one of the things that, uh, is, I don't want to say unique about this area, but that applies to this area versus some of the hunts on Kodiak, for example, or draw hunts uh, on the island, not all of them, but most. Um, and then here in the Haynes area uh, and other areas of Southeast, it's a registration hunt. So uh, it's probably worth covering. What does that mean? Um, because it, it certainly is something that could come up if guys are looking at goat hunts at all in Alaska is understand what a registration hunt is and kind of how they work. Um, so it'd be a good time to hit that if you can share some. Uh, yeah, you can probably touch on it as much as I can, but it's basically still an over-the-counter um, hunt. It's an over-the-counter permit, um, but they they take some of the general season areas and, and put them under a registration tag um, for areas where they want a little bit more control, either of whether that's controlling the amount of permits they give or at least controlling harvest. So they want to you to register for these certain areas so they know how many people are potentially in the field. And then there's certainly uh, requirements for reporting kills. Um, so that, that happens when they, you know, like I said, want to control the number of hunters out there and control harvest. And so like Haynes or this, you know, unit northern portion of unit one where we hunt um the entire area is broke up into really small subunits for goats and um each of those uh micro subunits have their own quota so as things go along they'll they'll shut down areas um when those quotas are met so that's that's kind of my broad understanding of the registration permits. Yeah. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, that's a good way to cover it. Like you said, it's over the counter, but then also a quota. So there's potential that certain, uh, not that the hunt closes entirely, but as you said, like certain micro areas of the hunt would close if quotas are met. Um, and from my understanding, I don't know how consistent that's been year to year, the quotas, but they, you know, they try and base that off of surveys that 
they do in the summer, correct? Yeah, they do. Um, which I don't know, um, how much I agree with that process because they're, they're surveying from a fixed wing airplane. A lot of goats live in, um, mixed terrain with alders and stuff. So they're, they're definitely not seen every goat out, out there, but they are making quotas based on only the goats they actually count. Um, and obviously they have a formula, um, to estimate the population, but they still make the quotas on the goats they see. Um, and that is done on a yearly basis, um, based on summer surveys. So you don't know, I, like, I don't know what a given area has for a quota until, um, basically until August, pretty much or late July. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, for the most part, they, they stay pretty similar year to year. Another factor, you know, and we kind of had these discussions and I was looking at different variables of timing for the hunt, uh, to pick dates. And, you know, part of that was just working with my schedule. Part of that was me thinking through, as you said before, like hair being a factor, um, in terms of how early you go, you know, the less hair growth there is on the goats, the later you go, there's better hair growth, but then downsides of, uh, worsening weather and things like that. So definitely not only in the Haynes area, um, you know, in my research, I was seeing this come up pretty often, whether it's BC or Kodiak or other areas of Alaska, or even factored in the guys who get super lucky and have a lower 48 goat hunt. Um, timing can matter significantly. When do you like for you personally, maybe, and maybe it doesn't match the, um, Arizona fishing game season dates, but when do you run your goat hunts? What does your specific season look like in general? Um, I generally do, uh, starting late September. Um, some years it's like September 15, other years, uh, I don't really want to be there until October, depending what I have um, booked in the interior. Um, so the primary season that I run is October through Thanksgiving. I've done it in the past. I've worked there from like September 1st through, man, the latest hunt we did one time was December 1 to 10. Um, so it's getting pretty crazy late. Um, I think, uh, I think kind of the best mix of everything, they're usually pretty haired up in most of our unit by late September. Um, the hair keeps growing yet through November, but, but they look really good by, by the end of September, even mid September, they're, they're pretty good. Um, I think October's kind of the sweet spot of getting them well haired up, but also, um, hopefully not winter weather yet uh, where access and things just become a whole lot harder. Um, so that's a sweet spot. And uh, I try to be back home by Thanksgiving now. So, so I'm, we're booked, uh, I think September 28th, October 4th. So kind of in the, the earlier portion of that whole season, uh, at least in terms of your operation, you sent me some pictures of goats in September that look unbelievable hair wise. Uh, so as you said, another potential of having good hair there in, in late September, early October, what is the, not necessarily on the goats, but how much do the, and again, this is mountains, right? This is Alaska. It's wild. Things change, but how much of a different is experience? Is it to say, 
hunt the first weekend of, or the first, call it the first week of October versus like that first week in November. Is there a pretty drastic kind of change in conditions and weather on most years in that, in that single month? Yeah, typically, uh, typically there, it would be drastically different. Um, October's kind of that, the main transition from, from early fall to potentially winter, you know, it, you never know exactly what you're going to get, but usually it's that mid to late October, you might get your first big winter storm. And, um, most of the years prior to the last two years, um, we haven't had any bad freeze ups, you know, even into December, we were able to, um, get up some of these rivers, but the last two years, like early November, we've had hard freezes that, that made access in some areas difficult. So throughout the year, um, disregarding the, the goat quotas themselves changing where and where we can hunt and access, um, just access changes. And, and obviously the being on the mountain, um, changes if there's snow on the ground or not no doubt about it so the that late well late september early october um more than likely we'll we'll have some wetness um that part is not near as rainy as like further south like ketchikan but october is the rainiest month the wettest month in southeast alaska so can pretty well expect moisture and yeah, throughout that time, I've had early October hunts that were really, really gorgeous weather, you know, 50 to 60 degree days and bluebird skies and things like that. But I've also had, you know, by mid-October, um, pretty, pretty strong winter conditions. So you never know for sure what you're going to get. Yeah, I was somewhat, uh, again, unfamiliar with Southeast Alaska. So when I first started looking, I was we at historical data on weather, right? And again, there's always a lot of variability, but if you just take the averages, I was kind of surprised at how mild it tended to be at the first part of October, really temp wise. Yeah. I mean, they, some of the locals there will consider that area of uh, Northern Southeast Alaska kind of be, to be a little bit of a banana belt because they're, it's protected from a pretty big land mass uh, like where Glacier Bay National Park is in the Yakutat Cordova side that gets all the ocean weather. So you don't really get the absolute like coastal weather. It's kind of, you get a mixture of interior climate and coastal climate. Um, so it's kind of a unique area. It can be, it can be surprisingly mild. And then it, it tends to be also in the winter colder than a lot of coastal areas because it is more that it gets those interior cold front um, swings that dip south into that region. So we've had these conversations, you know, when I was researching this hunt and talking with you about understanding, like, what does this look like? What are the logistics of the hunt? But I kind of want to rehash that, um, you know, for the listener's sake to hear about it. I fly into uh, Juno catch a charter flight over to Haynes. Um, and that's where, you know, we, you have a base camp, right? Like a house, um, right. for the season. Yeah. So kind of just walk me through, uh, I show up in Haynes, 
then what, right? Like, what does it look like? How are we getting to the hunt area? Are we based on conditions or how are you making decisions of like, Hey, let's go with, you know, four days worth of stuff or what is it? Yeah. Just kind of walk us through. I show up in Haynes kind of then what? Yeah. So that's, that's where I base out of, and there's a house I rent there. Um, but that's not necessarily only where we hunt, you know, we can hunt across the, across the canal if we want to or up by Skagway. Um, so we can spread out from there. Um, but I like to have guys arrive a day prior to their hunt dates. Um, we want to be, you know, getting out there, um, the day that your hunt starts. So it's kind of the way that I set things up. Um, so when you arrive, if, if by chance they're not flying those little commuter flights from Juno, there is a ferry, um, that doesn't run necessarily every day so that's kind of the fallback transportation but once you get there i pick you up um and everything is kind of included um, from there so we'll get get in and hopefully that evening we'll have time to unpack repack check gear check weapons make sure everything's good to go and and be ready to pack up the next day um, there's some areas we can access right off the road system. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit and do my part to do less hunting off the road system. Um, just that locals can, um, uh, that's typically where local subsistence hunters want to be hunting. So I try to reach more remote areas and that is generally done by jet boat up some of the rivers or across the salt water to access some different country. And I've also done it in the past. Some of these rivers are actually pretty tough to even get a boat very far up, but I've actually done some lining of canoe to access areas too. So then what do you, uh, and again, maybe this differs per client, like you're making these decisions, but when you say get there, unpack, repack, do you guys, or with most clients, are you loading up with like, Hey, we could be gone for five days or all seven days all the time. Or how do you make those decisions? Um, yeah. So as far as how long we will pack up for that's dictated about by where exactly we're going to hunt. Um, there are areas where we'll be like, this is kind of like a three day assault to start. We'll go there. If there's a good Billy, we'll take it. Um, but if it doesn't work out, like we can't really branch off from some of these spots. It's like you have one spot to hunt, then let's come back, come down, um, resituate and gear up and go to uh, plan B type of thing. So some areas just, it just all depends which area we end up going. We might be packed for the entire seven to 10 days, or we might be um, just taking it three days at a time and, uh, taking a break to resupply in between. Yeah. Are you trying to spot a lot of these billies and see if there's something worth the climb from the bottom, or do you have to kind of break that brush really or get into the Alpine and then do some spotting? What does that typically look like for you? Again, it varies. You can, there is a quite a bit of spotting you can do from the valleys. 
And usually that, that is a good plan, especially if we're trying out anywhere new or that we don't commonly hunt. Uh, it's certainly nice to put eyes on something before we head up the mountain. Um, cause once you go up there, you're kind of, you, you're kind of locked into an area. It's like I've said before, it's hard to traverse, um, from one base into another or anything like that. So it's good to have something spotted before you go up, but there's a lot of areas that, that we traditionally hunt that they're just so consistent, um, depending on the time of year that there will be billies there within like a three day window that they'll move through there. I mean, goats are so habitual to certain areas, um, that a lot of times we don't, we don't necessarily have to know there's something up there when we're going up. If it's one of those familiar spots, we know there's going to be some, there's likely to be something there. So when you say goats move through how much, like, what are the patterns, right. Of a goat, um, do they keep in like kind of a core range, but kind of moving in and out or what does that look like? It's generally a pretty small home range. Um, but obviously they will move typically move during the winter. Um, again, as your last guest, um, is it Bruce? Yes. Yep. Shared. Um, there's some areas where they will make somewhat significant moves for winter, wintering areas, um, whether that's dropping elevation uh, or to windblown slope areas. Um, a lot of areas, they will make some sort of move, and that typically happens. Well, they rut in November, so billies are going to move from summer high peak country to usually milder terrain where billies and nannies or nannies and kids, excuse me, are hanging out. Um, but other than that, their home range from what I can tell is considerably small. How common is it again in this area for your hunts to maybe spot a good Billy, but have him be in a situation where you maybe don't want to take a shot just because of his position and, and factoring in recovery. Is that, you know, half the time or is it more rare than that? How often does that come into play in terms of here's a great goat, here's a Billy we can get in range, but it's not an opportunity we want to take from a recovery perspective. Um, I would say that happens probably at some point during probably at least half the hunts where there's some point in that hunt, we are looking at a billy that we don't want to shoot based on where it is. Um, but usually that's not something that like dictates whether or not we get something. It just means that we either look, there might be another billy in the basin that we elect to take or, or we just wait them out because usually they'll, they'll move into the cliffs um, during like, midday if it's hot say there's certain areas one area i'm thinking of they'll move into the cliffs during a, a hot sunny midday type of pattern and then they'll they'll feed out in the evening into um nicer foraging areas where we want to take them and they'll spend usually spend the night out there um and then move back to the cliffs um again that varies on the specific spot but 
that is the typical movement. So you would, in that scenario, like we've waited out goats for five or six hours um, before and still gotten to shoot one um, that we were watching. So that does happen. It certainly is fairly common. It's not difficult to find goats, especially before there's snow on the ground. Um, it's just difficult to get them in an area where you can be relatively assured that you're going to be able to recover them safely. You said we were talking uh, again prior about, you know, encounters and things like shot distance. And I think you said the vast, vast majority of the goats that you end up harvesting with a rifle hunter is like sub 200. And even of that, a lot of it's at like 120, 130. Is that right? Yeah. As always, the terrain and the area dictates that, but there's, I don't know if it was just the uniqueness of um, some of these spots that we hunt. It's that a lot of, a lot of our kills are under a hundred yards and a lot in that 50 to 80 range. Um, But there's certainly areas where you want to have the ability to reach out cross canyon if you need to. You say cross canyon, what does that look like? If you're talking with a hunter, you know, is it, if they're, you know, have experience and are comfortable, are you talking like three, 400 yards or beyond that? If you're talking like a cross canyon shot. I would not, I do not think there's almost any scenario. I, I would feel okay with hunter taking a shot at over 400 yards. Um, at a go, it, there's just so few situations where that um, seems like it, there's just too much room for error um, to me for a mountain goat. Um, so yeah, I, w- I typically wouldn't let somebody shoot for room that there's, there's enough opportunities to get better shots than that. Yeah, I like it. Um. I feel like we could spend a whole podcast on this and we'll, we'll do a follow-up um, another podcast and get into some, some nitty gritty and also address listener questions. So as you guys are hearing this also feel free to shoot us an email uh, again, it's always podcast at xmontgear.com and we can address questions that you guys have with Mark on another show, but just to touch on it quick uh, today and you kind of, you touched on this on like gear choices when we were talking about, uh, both the climate and the terrain of like busting brush, but what are some of the unique things about hunting goats in Southeast Alaska from a, a gear perspective that are different than what your average guy with lower 48 experience thinks. Um, so take a guy who chases elk in Idaho or Colorado or Montana or hunts deer and bears and whatever, like what are the, and you provide a gear list, obviously, Um, but what are those specific like things that stand out that are just different than what most hunters have maybe thought through or considered from a gear choice perspective? A couple of things that come to mind, I guess, in in regards to the brushy terrain, depending on, I mean, if you probably hunted like coastal Oregon or Washington, you've dealt with brush a lot. Um, but having gloves specific to the brush, something that's pretty abrasion resistant, um, is something that's pretty important. Um, I think I've heard Steve talk about like some mechanics gloves. Uh, there's one, 
the one I typically use is called the uh, Ironclad is the brand, I think. And it's like the Exo Impact. It has a, like a bunch of rubber armor basically on the backside of the hand. Um, I find that especially if I'm using trekking poles or something like that, um, and I encounter Devil's Club or something, I am typically brushing stuff away, like using the back of my hand to kind of swat it move it out of my way as I step through. Um, so those gloves I've really liked. Otherwise, I mean, even just straight up leather glove, it, it'll get wet and kind of be and stay wet. But, but as far as dealing with the brush, um, it works really well. So that's important. Um, I am highly, highly partial to synthetics uh, in terms of clothing and insulation, whether that's sleeping bag or not. I think the the level of importance of that kind of increases throughout the year as you get later in the season. If you get into like a November goat hunt, I mean, you absolutely, absolutely have to have synthetic, basically everything. I mean, there's been enough times that I've crawled in my sleeping bag very, very wet. I don't, I don't think I would have felt good about being in down. Um, <clears throat> so I really feel strongly about that. I think early in the season, like your hunt, as we discussed, you probably can get away with down if you're careful and merino wool. But, but again, just the ability for synthetics to dry out quicker is, is pretty crucial. It's hard to dry things out when they get wet and you need every advantage you you can get there um i think you should give consideration like if you have options of rifles um obviously the caliber um is kind of probably the ultimate um decision there but if you have options or you're looking for something you should give some consideration to barrel length um having a big long barrel sticking up over your pack as you're trying to weasel your way through alders um, can be a major, major pain. And a lot of guys uh, struggle with that. So give that consideration um, along with how it mounts to your pack. The closer you can have that muzzle to the top of your pack, the easier it's going to be for you to dip under, around, and through everything. Um, so there's obviously... A lot of products out there on how to mount stuff to a pack. Um, for my hunt specifically, it's not necessarily critical to the goat hunt specifically, but um, a lot of times we need waders, which is annoying that people have to travel with their big bulky item. But what we're doing out of the boat, getting in, out, in and out of a boat, a lot of times it's fast rivers and um, squirrely stuff. If I'm running the boat from the tiller in the back, I can't always like land the boat, <laughs> jump out and secure it to shore. So a lot of times, whether if we have a packer with us or the hunter, um, <clears throat> probably needs to be capable of, of jumping in the water and securing boats. So, so a lot of times I do require waders. Does that need like full on chest waders or like kind of hip boots or more than likely hip boots would likely be fine. Um, 
but I, I do feel like chest waders are better. Um, just a boot foot, um, lightweight, uninsulated, breathable wader. Um, is kind of the ideal. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. If we got in a situation where we're like doing a lot of walking in it, um, lining canoes or something like that for access, then you probably want something nicer, like a nice Sims guide waiter or something like that. Um, but for the most part, I generally use some cheaper lower end um, type waiters. So yeah, um, hip boots probably would be adequate, but you just never know for sure yeah. uh, what you're going to get into. And it's a bummer to start out soaking wet. So. <laughs> Even though you may get soaking wet, just don't start. That <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> on that point, talk touch on rain gear. Cause right. It's, as you said, there's high probability of, of moisture. Um, and then at the same time, uh, again, I could go back to my experience with Kodiak. It's like, I just look at some of the country we've moved through and I'm like, man, lightweight gear, especially shells would get shredded quick. Um, so it seems like you need, you know, something pretty solid in terms of rain gear, um, for this hunt as well. Yeah, it's certainly ideal. I don't, I don't know that I feel super strongly one way or another about certain things. I think as the hunt goes on, um, maybe a little bit depending on the the experience of the hunter if you're actually going to be out doing a lot when it is raining or if more than likely you're going to hole up in the tent and, or wait till the weather clears to go up the mountain um <clears throat> the more you suspect being active in moisture definitely the the more you need a more durable and breathable uh, rain gear certainly later in the year you definitely want it because a lot of times you're you're going through snow covered alders and a lot of times it's wet snow and you're just wearing your your rain gear chronically then and so in that situation you really want that that heavier good quality um, durable breathable rain gear but earlier in the year I think I think you can often get by with something lighter I'd even um, I mean, there's situations where I use really light rain, rain gear, and if I was wearing it while going through brush, and put like a uh, soft shell over top of it to protect it from abrasion. Mm. Um, it's kind of a maybe a unique take on it. Um, and I, I've also had guys do fine with rubber rain gear on early season goat hunts. If you, if what you have is like a Heli Hansen or Grundens rubber some of their lighter stuff certainly you don't want the heavy fishing rain gear but their lighter stuff like the impertech um yeah, i think that's fully adequate and would do do well so cool. um one other thing that's probably not very common we use crampons or some sort of spikes quite often in almost any time of year not necessarily just when there's snow on the ground i i rarely go up the mountain without full like mountaineering style 12 point crampons <clears throat> it's just common enough to get on even if it's a grassy slope it's just steep enough that if it gets wet at all or even dry where it's just slick um i 
I like knowing my foot's going to stay where I put it. Um, so a lot of times I'm wearing crampons any time of year. Um, I don't necessarily always um, suggest them to hunters. They do put a lot of strain on your legs. You have to have pretty strong, stable, stable legs to use them. Um, a lot of guys will really, really struggle with them on if, if they're not, um, not on the strong side. So it's kind of mixed, but once you get snow on the ground, it's absolutely mandatory regardless. You just, you just have to have them. So, and then, uh, we often use, we want like one pickaxe in the group, especially if we're going to a new area, um, a lot of times we're excavating a flat spot. There's not a lot of flat spots on the mountain to lay down. So we excavated flat spots with a good, you know, heavy duty type of pickaxe, ice axe. Um, so we want one of those in the group, um, basically on any hunt. And then later in the year, sometimes we'll, I or a packer will supplement with a small pickaxe that we actually use um a little bit to uh supplement traction what is um you talk about clearance spots maybe think of it it seems like some of the I, I don't know how common it is for your hunts but you know some things we've talked about like do you typically always provide shelter or have hunters bring their own or do you just feel that out kind of per client uh yeah i feel it out based on each client um we plan to provide tents for everybody, but sometimes people have something that they they like and they're used to. In that situation, I would just advise that they kind of clear that with us and make sure it's kind of what would be recommended. Um, but yeah, that does happen. Sometimes guys want to take their own stuff, but otherwise we are you know prepared to provide um, the tent or shelter um, that we need. So about some of the bigger optics i feel like that's one that kind of comes up for guys who are maybe newer to guided hunts and some guys under the assumption that it's like oh i booked a sheep hunt i booked a goat hunt i need to go have another three thousand dollar budget for a great spotter if i don't have one but um you know in a lot of cases a guide may be perfectly fine with a, a client not bringing one and just having good binos and kind of one spotter for the group and how does it look like for most of your hunts uh, yeah, I think it makes sense just to have one spotter for the group. And that certainly is going to vary. I don't, that might be different on your hunt. And then we have, you know, you and Tyler there too. Um, but for the most part, it's adequate to have one spotting scope um, in the group. And usually I'd use mine unless somebody feels strongly about taking theirs. Um, that's something we could discuss. Um, so no, I, I typically don't advise that hunters take their own, um, for binoculars, um, standard, you know, some, some hunters use them, some hunters wear them and don't ever take them out, which kind of baffles me. Um, but any, you know, any type of binocular you'd use anywhere else is adequate for here for Western hunting. So Man, this has been good. I, uh, I have other questions. I'll save them for another day. We'll have to do this again as the hunt gets closer. And uh, as I said, throwing some listener questions in there. Before I do let you go, is there anything that kind of comes to mind that are kind of the basics we didn't address or maybe things that 
potential clients ask you about um, that we didn't discuss today? I don't feel like anything's jumping out at me. Okay, cool. We'll have to do it again, man. I'm excited to, uh, as you know, I'll, I'll be bugging you in the meantime and sending you a text and stuff like that just because I'm excited. But thanks for joining today and we'll have to do a follow-up here as the hunt gets closer. Right on. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's a wrap, guys. Check out the links in the show description if you want to get in contact with Mark or if you want to get in contact with us through the podcast. You can leave us an audio question through SpeakPipe or send us an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. If you're enjoying the show, we would love it if you could share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in your podcast app. That would help us tremendously. We'll talk to you soon.